0: I'd like to take a little trip into the future, not far into the future, just 10 weeks, and predict that exactly 10 weeks from today, right here in this same space, we will be gathered together to experience what might be called a liturgical whiplash. It's the liturgy for Palm Sunday, which happens 10 weeks from today And of course it happens every year. We gather outside, bless palms, march around exuberantly, sing, welcome Jesus in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We get into the church building and the organ is going and we're singing this this great hymn, all glory, laud, and honor. And at some point, it all comes to a screeching halt. There's a prayer for that moment. And it functions as a kind of reminder that uh, what we are celebrating has its painful side. Almighty God, your most dear son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. And so from that moment, the whole tone of the Palm Sunday liturgy shifts and what has begun as a joyful, exuberant procession runs straight into an entrance into Holy Week. And the rest of that liturgy is a liturgy of the Passion, as we read the gospel of Christ's betrayal and suffering. Now that is 10 weeks away in calendar time, and it is far away in gospel time, too. It happens right at the end of Luke's gospel, almost. And here we are just at the beginning, just as Jesus is making his first public sermon in the synagogue in his hometown. But what we experience in the gospel from today at the beginning is very much the same thing we will experience again at the end. As Jesus shifts from being enthusiastically accepted and welcomed to being rejected. As crowds of people move from hailing him as a great new thing to shunning him as not the Messiah they had hoped for. So here, one moment, his hometown people are hailing him as a golden boy with a golden tongue. And yet, moments later, they're ready to push him off a cliff. What went wrong? One possible clue to what so angered this crowd might have to do with what Jesus actually chose to preach on and not preach on. We heard the first half of this story last week as Jesus came into the synagogue, read a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and sat down to preach. We heard last week Deacon Pamela preach about that passage from Isaiah, and Jesus applies it to himself, saying, God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stops the quote. Now, he doesn't finish the sentence, which in the original from Isaiah says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus preaches the favor part and leaves off the vengeance part. Interesting choice. And it's a choice that seems to go over well at first with the people he's preaching to. Most of us like the idea of a God of favor, at least when that favor is turned towards us. And yet, we also might kind of miss the idea of a God of vengeance sometimes. We might like the idea of a God of vengeance when that vengeance is turned at other people, people we don't like as much, perhaps outsiders or enemies. And that is precisely what Jesus does not do. Instead of throwing brimstone at outsiders and foreigners, he widens the circle and widens it again. He tells these people that he grew up with that it doesn't matter if you're from the same hometown. He says outsiders and foreigners are just as good in God's eyes. He said God is working among pagan Gentiles like Naaman the Syrian. And it seems that that is what seems to turn his listeners against him. It's a lot of fun to hear that God is for us. It's less fun to hear that God is for our enemies as well. Now, of course, we today, like so many other times in history, live in a society that often teaches us to think in terms of insiders and outsiders, or us and them. Sometimes that can be innocuous, like Rams and Patriots. A little hometown pride is not necessarily a bad thing. And yet, all of us probably have seen times when even that kind of sports loyalty can turn into something a little unhealthy. How much more when we're talking about real lives and real human beings whose lives are threatened? Our politics today tries to teach us that our fundamental identity, who we are, is defined primarily by who we are not, by those who are not part of us. We often hear slogans like, America first, and that may work as a political slogan. It doesn't work as a gospel slogan, because in God's eyes no country is first or last. We often have recently heard people who are trying to legally seek asylum here, described as terrorists and criminals, with no evidence for that. Made to seem like scary outsiders, threatening our land, our home, our village, if you will. And so last week, Pamela preached about how our oneness in the body of Christ stands against any attempt to divide people based on race or place of origin. Attempts we see too often from people in positions of influence. It may seem like I'm singling out our current government. And the fact is, I do think that our government bears great responsibility for using division and fear of outsiders to try to achieve its political objectives. But it is also true that I have seen scapegoating and demonizing behavior on the part of people opposed to this government's policies as well. People on the left, right, and in between can all fall into the very human trap of cutting off those we disagree with, seeing them as less than or other. I don't mean to create a false equivalence that says, well, there's bad behavior on all sides. On some issues, we have to pick a side. When people in power do injustice, we are called to stand up against it. But as Christians, when we fight for justice, we have to remember that what we fight against is wrongdoing and hateful actions. That in the end, we are not opposed to human beings who are children of God. We are opposed to the bad treatment of other human beings who are children of God. In other words, We have to work for justice without hating. St. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the cosmic powers and against the spiritual forces of evil. Or in the words of one of my beloved seminary professors who used to engage in academic debates, I don't want to crush my adversaries. I want to win them." A couple of weeks ago, our country celebrated the birthday of Martin Luther King, Jr. And we often hear quotes from his I Have a Dream speech. We don't as often hear excerpts from a part of the speech where he talks about the spiritual practice of fighting without hating. And he says, In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. Soul force. Interesting phrase. A force that is powerful and is not about violence soul force in the end might be a synonym for love. Not hallmark card, sentimental kind of love, but real love, strong love, the kind that Paul writes about today in 1 Corinthians 13. The kind of love that moves mountains and transform hearts. The kind of love that never gives up. That does not rejoice in evil. Even the evil doing of our enemies, which sometimes might make us want to rejoice because we can feel so good about it, but rejoices in the truth. Here we stand at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he opens up Scripture and preaches the year of the Lord's favor, a favor that rests on Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider, a favor that refrains from vengeance. That sermon set in motion a movement of transformation that rippled through the world and is still rippling today through you and me. Here today in our midst, once again, Jesus is present preaching the gospel of peace. Here today, once again, scripture is being fulfilled in our hearing.